So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 through 14. Let's pray. And Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it comes to us without error, that it is God-breathed, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we do pray that you would change us, that you would give us attentive ears and hearts, and that we would um, even see this as an act of worship as we sit under your word preached and read and, and heard, and that it would become transformative and, and incarnative as we seek to obey it. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. The word of the Lord. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word of the Lord. So in this verse 14 particularly is what we're going to be um, looking at this morning. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I'm really looking at the strive for holiness. Because as we saw last week, the fruit of righteousness, and that's a part of what holiness is, shall be peace. So if you're striving for peace, you cannot strive for peace without holiness. If you strive for peace without holiness, then what that means is it's, it, it's going to be a false peace. It's going to require a lot of uh, manipulation and authoritarianism and, and things such as this, but with righteousness, with holiness, there is a fruitful peace that comes out of living holy lives. So I think too often in, in, the, in the church, particularly in our branch of the faith, the Reformed faith, we focus so much on the sinfulness of the individual. We focus so much on our inability that um, I think we lose some focus on the ability that God has given us and called us to by the Holy Spirit and through his word and the means of grace as we'll see the ability to be holy, the ability to be righteous, the ability actually to live out a life that is good and holy in the eyes of God. And I think part of our problem is, is we, we very much don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to be those people who... Um, are all about rules and regulations and how you dress and how you talk and how you look and how you say. And it's like, well, the problem with that is those are man-made rules. And what we want to see is, you know, what is holiness really? How does the Bible define holiness? And that's what we want to be. So we're going to look at, you know, what is holiness? And then why should we care about holiness? And then if we care about it, is it even possible to be holy? And if it is possible, then, then how are we supposed to go about it? So what is holiness? And holiness is one of those words that everybody kind of knows what it means. But it's a little difficult to define because we know that God is called holy, holy, holy in the throne room scene in Isaiah. And it's the only attribute of God, it's the only word describing a characteristic of God that's used 
in the, 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 the trifold way. God is not just holy, God is righteous, God is love, but to say God is holy, holy, holy. And in the Hebrew, the, they would do when they're talking about, we say like very, very, very. But holy, 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 that's to the, to the umph degree that he's, his holiness stands above all things. His love is a holy love. His holiness defines all his other attributes. His wrath is a holy wrath. And so we have to understand what does it mean to be holy because we are to pursue this holiness. So it's mostly the idea we get from the New Testament is an Old Testament idea. And so there's a few words that are used in our Bible um, for holiness. One, of course, is holy. And I tried to look that up. Where's that word come from? And really, that word has been around for so long that um, it always sort of carries with it this, the, the Judeo-Christian idea that we think of when we think of holiness. There's the word um, sanctus. So we get a lot of our words in the Bible in the New Testament from, uh, and that we use in the Old Testament too, from uh, Latin. And so this is one of those Latin words, sanctus. It's where we get the word saint from. So we're called holy ones in the Bible, but that word is saint. It's the inner sanctum. It's the holy room. It's the sanctification. It means becoming more and more holy. It all comes from that word for holiness. And then there's the word um, consecrate. That means with holiness. So if you consecrate something to the Lord, if you've been consecrated to the Lord, you've been endowed with holiness. You've been set apart because the word holy at its root means to be set apart. The word in Greek, the word in Hebrew, kadosh, which is the word behind all these Greek and English and Latin words, that word kadosh means to be set apart, to be set apart for God's purposes. So when God is holy, 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 it is saying that God is different from everybody else. God is different from everybody else's righteousness. His righteousness is holy. His righteousness is perfect. His beauty is perfect. His knowledge is perfect. He is holy, holy, holy. There are other beings we share in some of those attributes, but not in perfection as God does. But to be holy means to be set apart. And in this context, too, it has this moral quality to it. So we're to be morally perfect. Now, that's what holiness means, moral perfection, but morality based on the image and likeness and character of God. And so another word that we use is hallowed. That's where it's from the word holy. And we say that in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. What do we mean by that? We mean that your name would be kept separate from all other names. Your name would be elevated above all names. That your character, who you are, would be maintained in our minds as perfect, as worthy of worship. So even anytime we use all these different words, you see the word saints, that means you're the holy ones. You're the ones who've been set apart by the what spirits? The Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness. And so that's what's at work. And we're to be pursuing this holiness. So if we're to be pursuing this holiness, there's lots of ways that you can pursue separateness. And in the Old Testament, the, the separateness that God put on Israel was to be separate from all the nations. You are a holy nation 
Israel, and you are to be separate from the unholy nations. I'm not calling them, I'm calling you, and your light will shine to them, and by you and through you all the nations will be blessed. This is the ultimate promise to Abraham, and that they will all come to you, which is where we are now in the New Testament. But during the time of the Old Testament, things and places typically were called holy. You did have God was holy and you had holy men, but you had a holy place and you had um, holy words and you had holy items, items that were set apart for these purposes. You had in Leviticus was it 19 through 26, somewhere in there is the, the, um, the holiness codes where these are the things you have to do to maintain your holiness, which is a separateness from the world. That's why it's some weird stuff, like you, you, uh, you can't have a thread, you can't have material with two different kinds of thread in it, because that was supposed to separate you from, from, other, from the priest who did have that different thread in their cloth. And it was to keep you from everything, even your clothing had to be different, so that you knew you were to be set apart from the world. But in the New Testament, we still see some things that are called holy, but the true call to holiness now is that we are to, to shine forth the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we manifest this holiness in the world. So that's what, where the holiness of God is, is maintained here. The, the, we call this room a, a sanctuary, and you hear that word again, sanctuary, a holy place. This room is called a holy place. Well, what does that mean? And again, we have these concepts of holiness in our mind that can cause us to, to do weird things with it. So, you know, what it means is, what, when it's used properly, is we've just used this room to be set apart for the worship of God. So that when we walk in, the idea, we're to block off things from out there. Don't, I mean, you bring things to the Lord, but you try to focus during this time on the things of the Lord. We set this time apart. We set this day apart. And we set this place apart. But it's not the place that's holy. It's the people who are the holy ones who've come here. We can go gather outside in a tree. We can go wherever we want to go. But if you set apart for that purpose, you set apart place apart for that, then you can call that the sanctuary, the holy place. Just don't get too carried away with the place being the holy thing. It's the people who are the holy thing. And so how do we define holiness in actions? How does it look? And you have to use the Bible to define that. Otherwise, we come up with all sorts of of weird things that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience and so we need to make sure if we're going to bind our consciences or anybody else's consciences to the word of the Lord that it is the word of the Lord that we're following. So as we look at what does holiness look like then you need to look no further than what God calls the love of God. He says this is the law of God. This is what you should do, the moral law. You love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength and you love your neighbor as yourself. And so then, you know, the lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? And he says, you know, that's where you get the story of the Good Samaritan. And so you find out that your neighbor is anybody you have the power to help. And the question that Jesus is saying is not, is that guy my neighbor? But it's like, are you being a neighbor to that guy? Because that's the question. Are you being a neighbor to those who need a neighbor? So you're to love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Paul even tells us later that we're to think of others as more important than ourselves. These things, the law of love, 
And then we see that demonstrated even a little more minutely in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments, how do you love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the last six, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? How do you love the Lord thy God? You don't have any other gods in his face. That's what it means by I have no gods before me. It literally means in his face. So you have no God, no other gods. You don't make an idol of something. You don't set up something to worship it. You don't, and in the New Testament, we hear that um, greed and covetousness is even an idol. So you don't worship God except in the way that he says to be worshiped. And the third one is, and I have a way of remembering all these. It's like a W, which stands for word. And it's, uh, you do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't take his name in vain. And the Lord tells us to pray how? Hallowed be thy name. So his name is to be kept holy. It's to be kept significant and apart. And if you take his name in vain, Christian, that means anything you do in your life and you're taking his name upon you and you're living in a way contrary to the way we're called to live in the Bible, you're taking his name in vanity for nothingness. So we're called not to do that. And the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it, what? Holy. Keep the Sabbath day holy. So one day in seven, the Lord Jesus has transformed it by being raised on the, on, the, on the first day of the week. So since then, we call it the Lord's Day. And that is the day that we keep holy unto the Lord. Keep it holy unto the Lord. We're supposed to keep this day holy unto the Lord. What does that mean? It means it is to be kept separate from the, from the other days of the week. It is to be something different about this day. Set apart to to the Lord. And so too many of us today tend to maybe we set a part of the day aside and then the rest of the day we treat it like any other day. So we had to be careful with this. Uh, you also had to be careful you don't make this legalistic but that it's a matter of loving God. How do you love God? You see, he loves us by giving us one day in seven to set apart for him, to get our heads out of the mess that's going on and the chaos that's going on out there to say, remember who I am and where I am and get focused and get centered and worship me and remember me. If you don't do it cyclically, you will um, tend to um, fall away and to forget. And then how do we love our neighbor. The first one is honor your mother and your father so you may live long in the land. I do that with this. You get a spanking if you don't honor your mother and your father. Six, six bullets in the gun, don't murder. And Jesus said you can murder by just speaking these types of words of hatred and hating somebody in your heart, your brother in your heart. Seven, there's only two in a marriage. Do not commit adultery. Eight, I remember pieces of eight. Pirates, what do they do? They steal. Don't steal. We have Private property rights, okay? Don't mess with other people's stuff. It's not yours. It belongs to them. Don't steal. Nine is, well, you know, only have four fingers. No, 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 you're lying. Don't bear false testimony. Don't lie about yourself. Don't lie about other people. We also, and we do this a lot, we impute motive to people when you don't know why they do what they do. We say people are bad, people are, we judge other people, we say they've done things or said things or why they've done it, and we don't know. We've heard gossip. We might call it news or reports or whatever, but you've heard gossip. And so you have to be careful because you don't want to bear false testimony. And 10 is I just want everything. And I'm angry at people who have stuff. It's do not covet. And coveting is like you not only do you want something, but you try 
treasure it in your heart. In the Lord of the Rings, it's that ring. Gollum is consumed with it. Everybody gets consumed with this powerful ring, and it begins to eat away at everybody. And this coveting is that, to desire something so much. And um, is it James who says, uh, what causes wars among you? Is you desire and you want and you can't have, so you fight and you murder and this stuff. So you have to learn to be content with what we have. And we have so much. And you know, you've seen it with kids, you've seen it with yourself. The more you have, and it's relative poverty, it messes with people's heads. You, you, you know, you live in Haiti and people are jealous of the guy down the road. You see the guy down the road in Haiti and you feel pity on him. But you bring, you know, we go build, live in Bill Gates' neighborhood and all of a sudden we're all angry and upset because we don't have the big strong gate that operates like this like he does. You know, it's like, or whatever else. I can't, I'm so poor I can't even think of what rich people have. And I'm so stupid that I think that I'm poor because I compare myself to this culture rather than comparing ourselves to the fact that we live in a world where God has said, it, it just, I hope we're all able to look around us at the severe opulence we live in and we're able to look at ourselves there's a commercial that made me think this it's got a naked man in it so children close your ears but they don't show anything he's in a shower and he's he's like he can't wake up maybe you've seen it and he gets in the shower and it's got you know it's one of those fancy showers with the the glass and the big old room and stuff and he's in there and it's golden and he's got a wand and stuff and he dancing and he starts jumping around and carrying on and I'm, and what it made me think was you know I would say that's me but I don't wake up that easily in the shower it is it's opulence why does that guy get to have that and somebody else is living in a hut you know and then we have to say the same thing about us why do we get to sit in here with all of this go out in our cars and do all we have and have all and then some other Christian who's far more advanced in the faith than we are has to live in squalor and being persecuted in ways and tortured we can't imagine it is by grace sheer grace alone so that when we covet we are denying that God is our God and the more you have the more we tend to covet and so we have to make sure that things don't become our gods because you are to have no gods before him and so that's one way our lives are to look that we're there to be holy we follow those commandments we we try to live them out before the Lord but why should we even care about doing that because we're saved yeah, you're forgiven. Uh, why should you worry about your behavior? There's people that are worse than us anyway. Uh, why should we care about it? And, and when, the first reason is because he told us to care about it. And that, that should settle it. Um, he says be holy. He says, he says be perfect. He says you know, lots of places in the Bible we're told that our character matters. We're told our behavior matters. We're told to be good. So that's one reason we should care about it. Another reason we should care about holiness and what it means and, and what it looks like is because one of the things that God's doing in our heart through the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ. Every human being is created in the likeness and image of God. And this is one of the reasons God told um, Noah that this is why uh, murder is to be, uh, a person who murders is to be put to death is because they're striking at the very image of God. So the worst person you know still is an image bearer. 
but the believer is being transferred from this broken, marred image of God into the likeness and image of Christ, who gives himself for the sinner, who humbles himself, so that we see the man in the image of God seeks to be God and be elevated as God and to be worshipped as God, whereas now being transformed into, formed into the image of Christ, we see that even Jesus did not do that. Even though he was the form of God, did not seek to be elevated to that position, but humbled himself so that we're to be like this. So that as we're seeking to keep the Ten Commandments, uh, why would we do it? It's because there's an inward impulse within us that God is drawing us by his Holy Spirit to be more Christ-like. So when it really comes down to it, why does the believer do anything good? What's your motivation for doing good? The, the only true motivation is it's the impulsive work of the Holy Spirit within your heart. And he pulls you and draws you. And as a believer sins against God, there is this... <laughs> sorrowing of the Holy Spirit. There is this thing within us that hopefully we all know as believers, which is, I just wish I was better. I pray that I was better. I hate that I'm as bad as I am. I'm thankful for the grace that's mine because without it, I would be undone. But we should care about holiness because we have that impulse of the Holy Spirit that's transforming us into that image and then part of the reason why does he care God care about this is because we are to be a light in the world the way you live your life the things you say the things you do um, how you respond how you act and you carry the name of Christ all speak more loudly than your words do to the world that's watching and we all know that, you know, that your, and we say this a lot, your nonverbal communication is believed over your verbal communication every time. If I'm at your house and you feed me something and I go, this is good, I really like this. You, you don't believe my words, you believe my face. And so if we're saying I'm a believer, I don't have any problems, and yet people see you out there and you deal with problems in extremely sinful ways then they believe the way they see you live rather than things that you say and that should humble us because one of the things we should be saying is I'm a sinner saved by grace I'm not who I ought to be yet but we don't use that as an excuse because simply I've had um, <laughs> things my father would say he was he was an alcoholic and he would drink and and he'd be he would see himself um, in shame at times and he would look at me looking at him and he would say and I think he heard this from somebody too, use me as an example of how not to be now you can do that but that's not, the way to, that's not the way to go about your Christian life. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And Dr. I always, everything's Dr. Kick in seminary. One of my seminary professors said to us, can you say with your life to your friends and family and church, follow me as I follow Christ. Are you following Christ enough to be able to call people to follow that example? And that, as we're going to see, doesn't mean um, sinless perfection, but it means being able to walk in grace and mercy and trying to live your life in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord and does demonstrate the work of his grace on your on your heart, which includes your, your words, your deeds, behaviors, and actions, and all these things.
In other words, is that we're to be salt. So light's pretty easy to figure out as an analogy, but salt, or as a metaphor, salt's like, what's that for? Well, it does give flavor to things. It is supposed to help things to, in this world to be a little better, but it's also a preserving influence. So we're supposed to be, we are, the church is the only thing keeping this world in place. If it was not for the church, if there were no more believers and God was done with it, then the world is over. We are to be a preserving influence on our culture. And one saying I heard a few years ago is that the residual grace, we are living in this, we're talking about this country, uh, we are living off the residual grace of our ancestors. We are living off the residual grace of our ancestors. So we need to make sure that we understand grace enough that we are enabling this world to hold together just a little bit longer. And then another thing, not only is the world being preserved by our holiness, our righteousness, our faith, but you're being preserved by it. Um, Paul talks about uh, spiritual armor. So if you know, if you go into a, uh, I know in um, Star Trek, Star Trek, for some of you here, the next generation, the Borg, um, have this ability, you know, you got these lasers, they shoot at each other, and um, but and you can do a, um, the, the Borg have force field, and so you'd shoot at them, and um, they, would, they, they would modulate their, their guns so that the uh, frequency of the, the ray going at them would go against the frequency of the shield so it could go through the shields. But the Borg had the ability to fix that real quick, and so they, they could never be hit because the Borg knew what their enemy was, was those bullets. But what we do is we go into a, a fight that's a spiritual battle, and we don't have any armor on, and we're fighting with our fist, and your fists aren't going to do anything against the weapons of the warfare that are coming against you. Paul calls um, the, breast, the righteousness a breastplate. And don't mistake that holiness and righteousness are very closely um, related. So that our holiness is like a breastplate. Our righteousness is like a breastplate. That means you've got this shield of faith he talks about, and it extinguishes the fiery, fiery darts of the devil. Sometimes some of them get through because your faith's not quite strong enough. you got the sword of the Spirit, and it, which is the word of God, it's told. And that's for defense and offense, but sometimes blows get through. Well, you've got this breastplate to protect you then. It's the last line of defense. So you've got all these weapons, but you know, if you're just out there like the guy in the shower, it, you're just like, anything can get you. So it gets through these things. So Paul says, you need to have some righteousness because that's what the world looks for. Any, any chink in the armor. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. So your righteous armor is going to cause you to get persecuted, but it's not going to cause spiritual damage. It's not going to allow the spiritual powers to get in there and, and destroy your heart. They might take your house. They might take your, your food. They might take your, your, your wealth, your job, um, your, all these things. But people who know you, and there's all sorts of stories of people in the Soviet gulags and in, in the prisons in Germany during Nazi time. And um, the ones who were able to know there was something else and maintain, they would be tortured and they'd confess anything. 
because at some point you just get like that. But when the, some of them came out and they were still able to see their captors and, and love them in some way and say, because they knew this wasn't a physical battle, this was a spiritual battle. And this is what we need to be aware of today because we have a lot of enemies and you're seeing the world being divided. And what do you expect of the world? It is amazing the world doesn't destroy itself constantly. It doesn't. That's a remarkable thing that people are, that aren't believers, that are angry at God, and they can sit in a room together and behave as if everything's fine. That's the amazing thing. So when you see the world being divided up, you know, it, it, is, it, is it Trump? Is it Biden? Is it the Democrat Party? Is it a Republican Party? Is it Planned Parenthood? Is it, you know, Antifa? Is it MAGA? Is it Black Lives Matter? What is it? Because that's where we need to fight, the enemies. But we're told to love our enemies. All right, wait a minute, okay, that's difficult. You know, how do we work these things out? Well, the way you work it out is, is that you're talking about flesh and blood. And Paul says your enemy, your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is against demonic forces behind all that stuff. You know, you see all these things. It's like there's all these conspiracy theories. You know, who's behind all this? You know, who's somebody's behind all this? And I can't, Q, Anon, that's one of those things. The Illuminati, you know, it's all this weird stuff. I've got some non-Christian friends that'll talk to me sometimes. They'll say, I think we're being lied to. And it's like, yeah, Satan is lying to you. You know, the world is lying to you. It's just, this is not a battle against flesh and blood. This is a demonic conspiracy. You think people are smart enough to manipulate us this way? It doesn't concern me that the world's falling apart. It concerns me the church is being broken apart. That's the problem. And the problem is we're fighting each other with the weapons of our warfare, which are not flesh and blood. So you've got to be able to look at the world. Now, we've been asked to participate in our form of government, to vote for certain people, to um, we can do certain things we're allowed to do, and Christians should um, pray about these things and do and participate in these ways um, as as good citizens, but in holiness because you're supposed to be in a, a, a preserving influence, and we have to recognize that our personal righteousness, if we fall, and you will be manipulated by demonic forces, by Satan, and all it takes is your anger, your hate, and the stuff that's been within you for so long that you give rise to, because you're not... I'm jumping ahead of myself. Make sure that you recognize the fact that the way you love your enemies is to know that they have been captured by Satan to do his will. And what they need is to see true Christ-like love exhibited, not just somebody who claims the name of Christ, which almost every politician does. Make sure when you claim the name of Christ, you, go, you bear with that holiness and righteousness, which bears with it Christ-likeness, which is compassion and love and mercy. So you have to be careful of these things because we should care about it because in Hebrews we're told you won't even see the Lord without this holiness. I mean, this way it says, you pursue peace and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Why should holiness matter? Because you're not going to see the Lord without it. 
So then we have to say, gosh, <laughs> so is it even possible to be holy? Am I going to see the Lord? Now, that should be what you should be asking yourself. You should be sitting there when you hear this thing and say, if this is true, I'm not going to heaven. What do I do? This is why you care about holiness. First, he's not talking about here of sinless perfection because the rest of the Bible interprets things like this. And so we know it's not sinless perfection that we have to have, but we are told to pursue sinless perfection. You're to be, be pursuing that. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it, is it even possible? And here's the thing, if you can't believe it's possible, you won't even try it. Um, look at the athletic records. You know, somebody will, you know, the, the one-minute mile, one-minute mile. I don't know how long you're running a mile. Is anybody run? What's the fastest mile right now? I don't know. It, it's as if we can't you can tell we don't really care because we're not in danger of breaking that record. But people who, you know, they've been running a mile for this long, and then somebody does it a little bit faster. It's like, and now all of a sudden people, you can do it. I think there was some limit, and then somebody finally broke it, and then people started doing it. Or how high can you jump? And then somebody would jump a little higher. And it's like, oh, it can be done. Now, some of this is due to nutrition and training and things and equipment and stuff like this, but it's really a psychological thing that says once you see somebody else do it, then you can do it too. We had a Taekwondo class, and it was I think it was a black belt test or something. There's like 30 people in there, and this one, uh, I want to say he's elderly, but the older I get, the less elderly he is in my mind. He's probably in his probably late 70s. He seems, he wasn't the most, he, he was older in, in the way, you know, age was getting to him. And so one of the things you had to do, you had the cinder block, a flat concrete block, and everybody's supposed to go, and you try to break it. And so everybody went around, nobody broke it, got up to this guy, the guy you knew wasn't going to be able to do it. And he hit it, and he didn't do it. He's like, all right. <laughs> so yeah, the next guy goes around again, and it's, it's his turn again. Uh, and next, of course, you know, this is the guy that breaks it. You know, he's the one that did it. And then after that, everybody could do it. It was just like, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. But it's this, the power of believing that something is possible. And I think we as Christians have gotten ourselves into this mindset of holiness is not possible. Sinless perfection is not possible. So I won't even try. It's like a, the joke I used to make about why I don't lift weights. And I said, because I don't want to get all those veiny muscles and stuff. I don't want to outgrow all my clothes. And it's like, there's no danger. <laughs> You're going to be okay. You know, that's not, you don't want to look like those guys in those big magazines. It's like, yeah, you, you don't have that, you don't have to worry about that. So we put up all these roadblocks in our mind of what it, would be like and are we able to but we have to say that it is possible because God tells us to be this way and there's times he tells us something to draw us to himself to know we can't do it but this is one of those things repeatedly we're told be lights in the world uh, be holy pursue holiness you know be all these moral things he tells us to do so you can do it we can do a lot better than we think we can we can be more holy we can be better people than we believe we can but the one reasons you aren't is because you don't believe you can but you can it is not so that you can god will love you enough to send you to heaven he loves you enough to send christ to us he's already provided for our salvation now he's talking about our transformation that we're to be renewed in our minds transformed in our thinking that we are to be 
salt and you can't be salt and you can't be light unless there's something changing. You don't change the world just because you believe something and you never act on it because if you don't act on it, you don't believe it. We all act on our beliefs. And so since God tells us he must expect it and then we're to shine as these lights in the world, he says, even says you are the light of the world. I mean, that means you have changed church in some way or you're to be changed in some way that people see Christ through you. That should be what's, what's happening to us. And the darker the world gets, the brighter will shine. Even James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. So it's possible to demonstrate your faith through your works. You can do these things, not on your own power. So that brings us to this last point. How do we do it? Yeah, if we really kind of get an idea of what it is, we see Christ-likeness and holiness, and it's like, okay, the Ten Commandments and more, okay, I see what you're talking about. I see why I should care about it. It's a shine in the world. It's a protection against spiritual forces that are arrayed against me. It's, it's this inward desire I have to want to be more like Christ. And, and I think, you know, is it possible? And I can see where, you know, God tells me it is possible. It's, it's, so, so how is it possible? Well, first you have to be born again. You have to be born again. You have to have faith. The Holy Spirit has to do something in your life. You confess your sin. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that has to be first. You can um, mimic good behavior. The world can mimic good behavior. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you know, first, you have to be born again. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and then the next thing you know is that Jesus prays for us for this. So look in um, John. This is high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. John 17 and verses 17 and 19. And again, we're going to see the word sanctify. We're going to see the word consecrate. And both of those words mean holy. And so in John 17, 17, as Jesus is praying, this is called his high priestly prayer. He says to the Father, talking about believers, he says, sanctify them, make them holy. Set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. So one way is be in the word. And he says, as you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Now, that's that, in the Greek, it's that same word, hagias. It's that it's holy. I make myself holy. I set myself apart. Apart. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So you get that word consecrate and sanctified. It looks like they're two different words, but they're, they're not. So I make myself holy that they might too be holy. So what's that mean? How does he do that? You're talking about the holy God. Holy God, you're the son of God. He became man on that holy night. He was born to the holy family. He was born in that holy place on that and he lived a holy life completely holy in every way and he died a shameful death desecration not consecration desecration on the cross the holy God holy life did not die a holy death he died a shameful and cursed death on the cross because he was doing this for us. 
this is how he set himself apart. He set himself apart as perfect sacrifice for our sins so that whosoever believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then he, and he died. And we died with him. We died in him. Then he's raised again for our justification, the Bible says. And that word, root word there is righteousness. And it's the righteousness in the courtroom. You've been declared innocent. If you're in Jesus Christ, you've died with him. There is no longer any condemnation. And you're raised with him, and you're given the spirit of holiness. You're called the holy ones because you've been brought to life and indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that we now live with him so that we can call him Abba Father. And then he tells us, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is a means of grace. So how do we live more holy lives? Well, he tells us where to go to get more of this stuff. You want to be more holy? Then there's certain things that God has put in this world that we're to take advantage of that make us more holy. Um, you want to be healthier? Um, exercise. Eat certain things. Avoid other things. Grace and the spirit are just like that. He says, you want more of me? Let me tell you where to go. You go to the scriptures, and it's called the Holy Scriptures. On the front of many of our Bibles, it says the Holy Bible. Different than all of our books. So you go to the scripture because the scriptures are what God breathed and they're profitable for training in righteousness so we'll make sure we do that and you go to church don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more you see a day approaching so you go to church you read the Bible you go to church and then you walk you walk in the spirit not in the flesh you walk by faith not by sight. These are spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And he says, if you want to fight spiritual battles, you need to take up the spiritual armor. And if you want to be strengthened, it's like those video games where you, 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 there's a little thing there, and things, like those little diamonds or something, and it makes your power go up. You know, almost dead. Means of grace. Here comes one. Children. Sort of. They will sanctify you. So let's close with this. Titus chapter 2. It says all of Paul's writings are before you get to Hebrews and stuff. T's are in alphabetical order. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 14. Where's your diaper, man? He had a diaper on his head last time. I'm sorry, that was a... <laughs> Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does the grace of God do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession that's the definition of holiness who are zealous for good works declare these things exhort rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you it's the gospel a part of the gospel is our personal holiness our personal righteousness it is a result of being saved it is not the way you are saved 
the good works of Christ credited to you and you're given the Holy Spirit and you're born again and now you have the ability to be more Christ-like. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is another means of grace where he says, this is the gospel, this is the new covenant in my blood that we're to do it in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you've called us to holiness. We pray that you'll fix our minds on what it should look like. We don't let the world and we don't let even Christians who have made it look bad and uh, maybe we have our own messed up views of, of, of what it was and is. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that Jesus was lovely, that Jesus extended grace, sinners flocked to him, and he was gentle. And he was lowly of heart. Help us to be like this too. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.